Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with the creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Lauren Rhodes at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with Roderick Red, filmmaker and CEO of Red Squared. Roderick is a Jackson native. He studied broadcast production at the University of Southern Mississippi and then started a video production company specializing in content creation and documentary storytelling. Roderick directed the film The Defenders, How Lawyers Protected the Movement, a documentary about attorneys who took part in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, and Promised Land, a story about Mound Bayou, which traces the history of Mound Bayou since its founding in 1887. He's also directed and produced projects for NBC, the Mississippi Department of Health, the Atlanta History Center, Entergy, and others. Welcome, Roderick. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's wonderful to have you in the studio. So let's start at the beginning of your creative journey. Were you a creative kid? Did you like making things when you were growing up? Uh, Yeah, actually, I used to love to draw as a kid. So Hmm. I used to want to be a cartoonist. Okay. I used to like want to draw comic books and things like that. Um, so growing up, I used to love to draw. It's like one of my favorite things ever. I was really into superheroes, so I would draw superheroes a lot. Um, uh, and then when I got to probably middle school, I was drawing comic books, like full-fledged comic books. And I was getting drawing books and like teaching myself how to draw. And I was buying, I was uh, writing comic books. I had my own little group of heroes, and I would sell them in middle school. So that was kind of my creative thing I did kind of growing up and. It's actually been a while since I've drawn. You know, I probably I probably grew out of it once I got to high school, but um, yeah, I still remember it fondly. Uh, I think I'm still pretty good at it too. Sometimes I probably should pick up a pencil and see. Yeah, well, interesting that you also had an entrepreneurial edge to it even back as a kid. Yeah, just crazy. I, I you know I forgot about that until my friend reminded me that I used to sell them because my friend used to be an enforcer. Like I I might used to have a kid that didn't want to pay me. And then I had a friend of mine used to like, you know, back me up and be like, hey, pay the man and you got to see me. <laughs> so that was cool. Every friend needs one of those. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> uh, so when did you start becoming more interested in, in media and video production? Uh, well, media was high school. So uh, I was on a team to bring back a high school newspaper. And I'm a JPS graduate. I went to Murrah. And our, news, our high school newspaper was called The Hoofbeat. And so I was the photo and art editor. I was one of four editors on the uh, school newspaper. And so we brought it back after it probably was defunct for like 20 years. And so uh, used to go, I used to go around school taking photos. And I was a photo guy. And it was actually a good time to be like the photo guy because uh, around that time, my last year or last two years in, in um, high school, Facebook became a thing. I got yeah. invited on Facebook. And so I was putting up a lot of photos of my friends. So I have a lot of photos and from 2006 and 2007, my junior and senior year of high school, uh, because a lot of those photos made it in, um, in uh, like, the hoofbeat and things like that. And so it was, it was pretty cool. Was that was when different. you got your first camera? Yes. It was like a little digital point and shoot with a little flash on it. Yeah, it was cool. And those are coming to, back. Yeah, those are, they're, they're nice cameras, man. You know, these, you know, our cell phones are even better now, but like, it's crazy to think about how far we've come. 
yeah. So yeah, that was high school doing doing the uh, photo art editor thing. Uh, yeah. So did you have a role model or someone in you know taking photos that you admired that you kind of looked up to back then? No, not back then. I knew that my dad used to take photos back in high school, so that was something cool. He um, he was used to take photos uh, as part of the school newspaper and a yearbook at Port Gibson High School with Sarah Campbell, mm-hmm. who I just left an event from speaking, uh, talking about the Defenders. At so the it was cool. yeah, so Sarah she, Campbell at Mississippi Department of Archives, Archives and History. History. Yeah, so, she, so she's got to work with two Roger Reds already on uh, several different types of projects, so that's kind of cool. But yeah, I heard about his photos. His photos were pretty cool, but I really didn't look at anybody back then. That, you know, and the internet was still in its nascency kind of back then, so we weren't like on it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't know about a lot of people who did photos and stuff, so I was just kind of going out and like just taking photos, you know, like, hey. So, yeah. And so when you got to college, how did you know, how did you decide to go into was it broadcast? I just I just said it. Broadcast mm-hmm. production. Yeah, that's a good question. The the uh, what was it? I um, when I first got to college at USM, I majored in photojournalism, and I don't know. It was something just kept telling me like I, that photojournalism was not what I was supposed to be doing, and I wasn't going to be able to make a lot of money. <laughs> and so like I think my first semester, like I went and I changed my major, and I just looked on the paper and I was like, let me pick something. That, Probably it's gonna make me some money, and I landed on broadcast production. It was like video production, broadcast production. Uh, back then, it was called radio, television, and film. Hmm. So it was right before like YouTube really took off, and right before all the colleges changed their major to media. Like no one used the word media to describe oh. stuff. It was like radio, television, and film, mm-hmm. right? Because those are the only ways you can get stuff out there. And so that was like 2007, 2008. And um, I, I just changed it because I thought I'd be able to make more money. And I didn't, I, I didn't even question myself then because I didn't even sound like it was supposed to be right. But I turned out to be very right, like because the world literally changed while I was changed my major to, you know, create to the point where now media is like king. Like mm-hmm. if you knew if you have the skills that I have now, like I couldn't have picked a more perfect time to be in the job I'm in now because it's only gonna go up from here. Which is insane. So, I, and I had no forethought or warning before that. I just was like, uh, "This is probably gonna make me more money than photojournalism. I'm gonna pick this one." So it's, it's kind of random, but yeah. So, what type of projects and stories were you interested in in telling, or you know, when you're in college, was there a type of story you were drawn to, or were you just really in, into learning the basics? And I was kind of, I was kind of learning the basics. So when when I was first learning, you know, we taught us how to do radio stuff. Which was like getting us ready for doing podcasting things, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but and we didn't know that at the time. But um, also, television was big. And really, like what I've learned is like how to like what I learned in college was like basically how to run a television studio. Hmm. Um, and so that that was the background basis of what I actually learned. And I don't use any of that now in my practice because I don't run a television studio. I do like I work on real films and I run a you know advertising agency. And but that was previously before a production company. But, um, yeah, the it 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 was interesting because once I once I learned those things, then um, I, the stories I was telling were just the ones that were kind of around me. So I wasn't going to look at any interesting stories. Like I was in college, so I was like a true college kid. Like I was like hanging out, you know, kicking it, going to parties. I went to USM, so 
it was a cool party school. <laughs> um, my friends, like, um, they were on a, um, a basketball team, like a um, like an intramural basketball team we had, and I, I was, like, the coach. And so, like, I would, like, shoot, you know, basketball videos for them and, like, you know, get them, you know, shooting highlight reels for them and yeah. stuff like that. So I was inspired by, like, sports photography probably by the end and, you know, highlight reels and stuff. So that was what I was kind of doing. I wasn't doing, like, the super journalistic you know, civil rights history, stories. History, archival documents. Yeah. That was yet to come. Yeah, that was yet to come. As soon as I saw some documentaries, though, was, I really got inspired, though. So, hmm. mm. Well, so what, after, you know, you left college and you got out on your own, did you know that, what made you want to start your own company, start working on your own? Well, you, these are some really good questions. Where are you getting the questions from? <laughs> uh, these are all questions that I would want to be asked. In well, good. Order. Thank you. Uh I started my company because I couldn't get a job. It was just like kind of huh. simple. Where did so, you did you apply to jobs elsewhere? Or? Uh, yeah. So when I graduated, I went back. Uh, I graduated like in December 2011, and so Christmas time I was back home in Jackson, and I you know I didn't have a job, so I moved, I moved back with my mom. It was kind of my my brother and sister were still in college. My sister was still at Mississippi State, and my brother was at Jackson State, and so I was at home chilling, you know, and my um. My uncle had a car lot, so you know, and he was an entrepreneur. So I would go over there most times, and he would um, pay me to kind of wash the shop for him mm-hmm. once a week. And he eventually got me uh, selling cars. So um, you know, he got me to sell my car, and uh, took the money and bought some cars and fixed them and flipped them. And so I was kind of learning how to be an entrepreneur from him mm-hmm. during that time while I was at home. And I was also kind of looking for jobs here and there. I was putting in. Uh, applications at local TV stations and and couldn't get a job because I didn't have experience or whatever and so it's kind of like uh you know I was kind of in this weird place of just like selling cars and like trying to figure it out and the whole time my uncle was really trying to prep me he kept telling me I could be like an entrepreneur and at that time I had no intentions of being an entrepreneur I didn't even want to be an entrepreneur like I didn't think I could I didn't care about it it never crossed my brain you know I just used to want to get a job get paid well you know Go to work, go home, you know, chill. That's what I wanted. Um, but eventually, I, you know, I had to because I, you know, I couldn't. Nothing was coming through. So, so did was Red Square the first company you started? Was that? It was. Yeah, it was, it was started. My my dad passed in 2012, and that was the thing that was the catalyst that made me be like, okay, I'm gonna have to, I need to do something to uh, figure out my life. And so that's when the name came from too. It's named after my father and me because I'm a junior. Mm-hmm. So Red Square Productions. So after he passed, I created Red Squared and sat there and figured out the name and 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 we decided the services there was going to be video and photography, which was something that he did in high school. Photography and video, which I did now, and so we did a lot of that. And so I did, you know, first couple of things I did, I made my uncle a commercial. You know, I got a, got with some folks who connected me with some organizations that needed some video work and. It, we took off, and I bought my little first camera, and I, I had a little Mac laptop, and I was at the car lot, you know, working on Red Square, and this was 2012. So wow. It's crazy, and now we're uh, there's a, we're in our 11th year, you know, so 11-year anniversary this year. It's kind of crazy. Well, I was just thinking about, you know, full disclosure, we're friends, um, but many mm-hmm. years back before we became friends, I remember seeing you around Jackson at events and you were the guy with the drone <laughs> yeah. and so you were very cutting edge mm-hmm. even back then you know almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. um how did you 
that seems like you know it, it took a lot of foresight to invest in mm-hmm. in drones. How did that come uh, about? Man, well, you know, if you haven't had anybody fly a drone in front of you, it's not that hard to get invested in it. Like, it, was kinda, <laughs> it was a very cool piece of technology. But no, when I started to see how the drones were set up and then how they had cameras on them, they were put back then we had drones where you had to put uh, GoPros on them. Mm-hmm. And then they built these special gimbals where they held the GoPros steady. And then so you can go and you can shoot this high-quality video. And then uh, it, once I saw somebody, like, shoot high-quality video from a drone, you know, from a, you know, uh, a GoPro from a drone, like, that, I was, so that was that was it. It was, you know, it was like I had to get that. Like, and so, you know, it was like a, such an easy tool to add to the repertoire when you're making videos. And so you would, like, blow people's minds when you open up a video of a drone of their building. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, my God. And then you cut in, and they're, like, talking about whatever they're talking about. And it was, like, it was, like, the ultimate wow factor. So, like, once... It was shown to me like one time, I think, and I just was like, "Oh, I gotta get that," and I and I bought it. And I was one of the few here that was on top of it. A lot, weirdly, a lot of the guy that showed it to me wasn't even in video production. They just were like enthusiasts that like to fly drones. Mm-hmm. It was like you you had full autonomy on like controlling like a you know RC in the air. And so when I was using it for like, oh, this is crazy. I can make a lot of money from this. So you know, and it was fun to fly too. So and there, I just remember kids like gathered around you. Yeah, it was the coolest Kids thing and grown men. And this was this was the time before there was any regulations. So it was like, there's no, like, right now there's, like, all types of technology. They can, like, dead your drone in the air. If you fly over a certain building, right. your drone can just fall out of the sky. You know, so. <laughs> uh, but, like, back then it was like, oh, it's just like Wild Wild West. Like, just flying yeah. drones. And police didn't even know what to do. They would stop and just be looking like, wow, that's amazing. It's great. <laughs> and they didn't even think, like, I have a bomb on this. I can run this into a building. <laughs> it's like, you know, so. It was crazy. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Lauren Rhodes of the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with filmmaker Roderick Red, whose production and design business Red Squared is based in Jackson. So, Roderick, I want to ask you about, you know, you're in the film industry, and, you know, as well as owning a production design company. What is it like to be a filmmaker in Mississippi? I'm sure it you know, I'm sure it comes with a lot of challenges and probably also a lot of benefits, too. Yeah, I think, um, well, the first time you asked that, the first thing that came was the challenges. But then, actually, equally, because of who we are and where we are, there's actually, like, a, a, a huge amount of benefits that come with it. So I'm going to start with the benefits. Okay. Probably the benef- the greatest benefits of being a filmmaker in Mississippi is that um, if you're making stories about Mississippi— you have a wealth of 
you know, stories to go after. There's so many different stories to be told because we have such a distinct history, I think. Um, uh, distinct and, and very unique to this country. And then also in some ways not, not that unique. Uh, I'm always trying to advocate to be like, we're unique, but like we're not that much different from the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we're like, you know, the best at being the worst sometimes, I guess, as we're known for. So, um, that's always an interesting part. And that, and that's a good thing, I think, if you're looking for stories to tell, like you can't run out of stories, whether you want to tell big stories about the civil rights movement or small stories about how smaller people helped during that movement or, you know, how people interact with each other or politics and how things happen. Like all this stuff, you know, really is rooted here in Mississippi. So uh, there's always great, great stories to tell. Uh, the barrier of entry here is pretty low. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to, um, if you want to start telling stories, you can just start doing it because yeah. there's not a lot of people doing it because, you know, we have a hard time keeping people here. And, you know, um, a lot of our population uh, lacks the skill set to be able to kind of tell stories on a, on a higher level. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm still around here so we can help those folks here who want to tell those stories uh, to be able to help them do that. So, um, yeah, those are some of the good good things about being here, but the tough parts about living in Mississippi are kind of the obvious ones, obviously. the You know, I don't think people recognize, like, the real lack of resources that we have here in Mississippi. Um, there, there really are the have and the have-nots here. Um, and so there's, like, if you're, you know, if you're trying to tell a story on a high level, like, there's less access to resources here uh, than usual. You know, being a business owner here, you know, there's a cap here you, of money you can make here because there's not a lot of industry here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it. A lot of people don't recognize that there's so much more industry in just states, you know, one or two states over, you know, where you can grow a like business. Atlanta. Or Atlanta yeah. or Texas. Mm-hmm. You can grow a business and it will grow, you know, instantaneously because it's just so much more money there, so many more customers there, so many more clients there that with resources that want to help um, and that want to be a part of stuff like that. And so... Uh, we just don't have that here because we just, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, industry here because of, you know, our situation in terms of uh, lack of resources. And so, um, yeah, that's probably the most frustrating thing about living in Mississippi. So, How have you been able to overcome some of those challenges? I mean, you have a, a big team of people. Is it, you know, creative partnerships mm-hmm. with, you know, different entities in the state? Um yeah, yeah, I think um, I, I think that that does play a role. Creative partnerships is important. Um, uh, working together, I think that's the next step for us in the future to be able to help us grow. Um, is because we want to become um, you know influential than in what we are. Like we've been able to, I've been able to build something um, that that is, that sustains itself now. You know, like being in, being in this business eleven years now, I've been seeing ups and downs a lot, and. As the trajectory goes up and down, up and down, we've only been going up as we've been going up and down. And so, like I said, I started with just me. Mm-hmm. Now I have several. I have a team of people. Um, but like I've kind of, we've kind of hit a wall now. And so, in order for us to keep growing, we have to branch out of the state because there's not mm-hmm. a lot of we can choose from. You know, we might be a little more expensive than what other organizations here are willing to pay. And then also, we might be trying to do work with organizations that just they don't exist here. So we have to go somewhere else to do this other type of work. Um, also, there's a system here that, that it's just hard to kind of break through um, in terms of once you get past a certain threshold of money, <clears throat> then that's only allowed for certain types of people. Mm. Um, so if you, the, the more money you're trying to go after, the harder it is to get because it's only, you know, for certain people. 
you know, right. as opposed to with the other places because there are more resources. There's more money widely available to go after. So, you know, if you're gonna get a million dollar contract here in Mississippi, it's not about being the best. It's about kind of who you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to somewhere else. You can get a million dollar contract because there's just so many million dollar contracts, right? That they're, they're, you can't close the door on all those resources out there. But in Mississippi, there's so little. Everybody wants to gatekeep and keep them closed and keep them, you know, keep them together because, you know, they have an incentive to. So that I imagine that can be extremely frustrating, mm-hmm. disheartening. But, um, well, you know, you're one of the leading documentary creators in the state, if not the leading documentary creator. I don't know. You've mm-hmm. been making some really amazing work in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the first documentary that you worked on? Ooh, the first documentary I ever worked on was a really success. It was a successful one. It was called Mississippi Left Me Out. Um, I remember going to the premiere of that. I was like, did you go to that? Yeah. It a, yeah, it was. A, with your now wife. With my wife. I mm-hmm. wouldn't even, I, I wouldn't, yeah. Did I even, I don't even know if I spoke to her that day. It's crazy. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, Mississippi Left Me Out. It was in 2016. It was in partnership with the Mississippi Health Advocacy Program. And so they had reached out about wanting to do a documentary about Mississippi and them not expanding Medicaid and the consequences of that. And so they reached out and we worked on this documentary for about a year and a half. And um, the screening was actually our idea. Like they had no intentions of making it, you know, put screen in a documentary. And so yeah, I put up my own money to screen it at hmm. the at the uh, convention center. And yeah, it was a lot of people, like 300 plus people came out and they were so interested, so many medical students. and. You know, local folks came out and supported it, and it was like one of the signature events that Red Square had ever did. And it really helped us in t- as a company, uh, like, to build a community with people. Because, like, now, if Red Square is ever going to put out anything else, we always have huge crowds that come to it. Because yeah. we have a great support system here of people that support the work that we do here. And it all started from that documentary. And so they're always supporting us and coming to see our work and interested. And, and so it's been it's been great. But that was the first documentary I'd ever done. And, uh, you know, I always look back and kind of cringe and look at it and thinking that it's going to be really bad when I watch it over again after years go by. And every time I watch it, I go, it actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not as bad as I holds thought up. it was. Yeah, it holds up pretty well. So, you know, I'm, I'm super proud of that. I got a poster of it in my um, office hanging up framed. So, And I bet a screening is really valuable, too, because you're working on it you know, behind the scenes for so long. It's mm. probably really nice to be able to see people's reactions and hear from people firsthand. Yeah. It's almost, the reaction is almost never what you thought, you know, they were going to be. And, you know, and before we screen it, you know, we obviously show it to other people to make sure, that, you know, we're not showing them something like crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we're not totally surprised, but that screen, like, you know, films are uh, something that I meant to be, you know, um, shared communally, communally. So we're, you know, and, and so it's all we, so we get such gratification for showing it. The team loves it so much because they get to see their work. Being on a big screen, they get to see their names at the end of the documentary. Yeah. They get to get recognized. You know, those are things that I learned as a leader that were so important to team members around here is that they, you know, you celebrate them being a part of something, that means a lot to them, you know. Uh, you know, I'm, because I'm making them, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, you're the director, da, da, da. And I'm like, I, no, I'm not really like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait. You know, call me the director. I, I don't care. I kind of want to hide sometimes. But for my team, I know how important it is for them to be recognized and, 
And so it's, that's a, a screening is like a great tool mm -hmm. for just like, you know, being able to get your team excited about what you're doing, let them know that your work matters and people are going to see it. And that you can add it to your list of things you've done and take with you, you know, even if you leave Red Square to go somewhere else, you get to say, oh, I did this thing and right. here's my credit on here. Well, and it seems like film more than any other creative medium is very collaborative. Yes. You know, you can't do it by yourself, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Very much so. It is. Um, well, since then, you've also done, you've directed and produced a couple documentaries that have generated a lot of buzz at film festivals around the state and the country. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about Defenders, the Defenders, How Lawyers Protected the Movement. How did mm -hmm. that project come about? So that one was, um, it was the kind of a brainchild of Judge Anderson, Judge Reuben Anderson and Judge Fred Banks, who were um, who are civil rights legends in their own right, but they're a part of this organization called the Foundation for Mississippi History. And they were very particular and wanted to tell the stories about these three black lawyers, you know, Arches Brown, Carsey Hall, and Jack Young, who were little known, but were instrumental in getting uh, a lot of the movement stuff that happened in Mississippi changed. So they were the only three black lawyers in the state that would take on civil rights cases. So a lot of folks, they they were the only ones, they were the front lines for decades. Mm -hmm. And then after, when the NAACP started to get involved in the, in the Legal Defense Fund and all these different organizations started to come through Mississippi, um, in Mississippi you had to have a Mississippi lawyer on your cases. And so whether you were Thurgood Marshall, whether you were, you know, Constance Baker Motley or all these legendary civil rights, you know, leaders and uh, lawyers who came here to fought these different cases, they had to partner with R.J.S. Brown or Jack Young, whose names are on all those pleadings, all those cases, three men's names wow. are on like hundreds of pleadings of cases because they had, they, they were their Mississippi lawyer. Like they couldn't come here and practice mm -hmm. law without those three people. And so people didn't even know who they were. And so uh, Judge Banks and Judge Anderson really wanted to get that story out there. So uh, they raised some money uh, and went through the Department, Mississippi Department of Archives and History and they wanted to bring in a company to be able to bring the story to life. And so we were able to put our name in the hat and we got picked and we got to partner with uh, Sarah Campbell, who's over programs at the, the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. And she co-produced it. I was able to direct it and bring in my staff, you know, DPs and, and historians and all different types of people. And we were able to make something great. We, just, we were excited about it too. So, Who were some of the people that you interviewed that, you know, really impacted you? Because you got to you know, you got to talk to some really important yeah. civil rights figures. Yeah. For this. One of the things I learned from talking to those folks was like, like all these different, again, like all these different people were so unassuming. And these people are literally civil rights legends. And it started with like Fred Banks and Reuben Anderson, who were the first and second, you know, uh, Mississippi Supreme Court justices in the state. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, those two guys, along with Mel Leventhal, who was another guy we got to talk to, a lawyer from upstate, a lawyer from New York City, who came down and lived in Mississippi for years, uh, who also married um, Margaret Walker. Alice Walker. Alice Walker. Alice Walker. <laughs> Ooh. Um, uh, when he was down here, they started a law firm and they, they, they desegregated schools. They worked on a case that desegregated um, public schools in Mississippi. Uh, you know, wow. these are like not small feats, right? Mm -hmm. I got to talk to um, uh, Martha Bergmark, who lives in D.C. now, but who started the Mississippi Center for Justice, uh, which is an organization that's still ongoing now. Um, we got to talk to Marion Wright Edelman, who I had never knew before, but, 
you know, Dr. Martin Luther King writes about her as an inspiration for him even being able to do the things he's done. Wow. Um, and she was like one of the first black female. She was the first black female lawyer in the state of Mississippi and came and was arguing cases at a time when it was like the most foreign thing ever to see a little black lady in in court, you know, uh, arguing cases. Like that Amazing. was, cr- you think about what that looked like in like 1960 in Mississippi. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> it was crazy, it was unimaginable yeah. and just like crazy. And so she was here arguing cases. She flew out, first time she came to Mississippi, she flew to Mississippi, Megger Evers picked her up and oh took her God. up through the Delta, showed her around the state, brought her back to Jackson, had dinner with her and his home with his family. And she worked and lived in Mississippi for years. And like I said, Mel Leventhal worked for her. So she told Mel Leventhal what to do when he came down. He was a young law student from New York City. And so, um, but uh, she went on to leave and start the Children's, the, the Children's Defense Fund, which is a Super large, you know, um, mm-hmm. nonprofit organization based in DC that has a Jackson office to this day because mm-hmm. she was so affected by the poverty in Mississippi and that encouraged her to start the Mississippi Children's Defense Fund. And yeah, the fund is awesome. The fund gave Hillary Clinton her first job in DC. And so Hillary Clinton wow. worked for the, you know, the you know, Children's Defense Fund. And uh, all this was started by, you know, Mary Wright Edelman, who started that organization, who before she did that was a civil rights lawyer in Mississippi. So. It was crazy. That's well, amazing. What an what an opportunity to speak to to mm-hmm. her and all those incredible people. Hi, I'm Lauren Rhodes. You are listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Arts Commission and MPB Think Radio. You can also listen to the show on Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at five. To have access to all Arts Hour interviews, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think "Eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere this is an mpb think radio podcast you're listening to the mississippi arts hour on mpb think radio I'm Lauren Rhodes with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with Jackson-based filmmaker Roderick Gred. So before the break, we were talking about your documentary, The Defenders, and um, I know you showed this documentary at some festivals around the country. Can you talk about that experience and which festivals you went to? Yes. We got the opportunity to show it at a couple of different film festivals. So the first one, my favorite, was at the March on Washington Film Festival in D.C., uh, that was exciting because it was a featured uh, documentary for the whole festival. Wow. And so I got to participate on the panel uh, with um, a couple different um, kind of civil rights leaders, uh, Derek Johnson, who uh, runs the, in the National NAACP, and um, uh, uh, the guy that runs the Color of Change, um, Rashad, uh, something, I forgot his name, but um, it was a great it was a great panel to be a part of that and talk about you know, what it was back in the day and what it's like, you know, today and the differences. And um, so that was that was awesome. That was our first out-of-state um, uh, festival we were part of. We, we got selected for the Oxford Film Festival. Um, 
We also accepted for the Morehouse uh, Human Rights Film Festival. We were also nominated for um, Best Documentary Short there wow. at the Morehouse um, uh, Film Festival. We didn't win there, but we did win two awards for the documentary. Uh, we won a gold award from um, the Southern Museum Conference, uh, and uh, we also won uh, an award from the Mississippi Historical Society. Um, and so, Congratulations. Yeah, super excited about those. And so, yeah, we just keep getting... You know, invitations to show it and you know awards and, and just a lot of love for the doc and we're so glad it was a great great piece it's got a great curriculum that goes with it too mm. and so the goal was always to make something kind of educational so that students can take with them and learn and discuss and see and so yeah we were super excited about the, all the awards it's got the recognition so i was surprised at least were there any lessons as a filmmaker or as a director that you took away with you from the experience yeah, probably a few of them, man. Like, um, you know, just how valuable time is, mm -hmm. and also how much how, how valuable um, having different people doing different things for you. Like sometimes when you're making films, it's a very collaborative effort. But sometimes there's things that that are so you, know, you think are minuscule that you feel like, well, I can do that too. Mm -hmm. Well, I can do this and that too, you know. And I learned like from the archival footage, like just how valuable it was to had to have somebody whose job, whose sole job was to find archival footage, um, like, that was huge. So I learned that less, like, okay, if I'm ever doing a historical documentary again, I'm definitely bringing on an archivist who's going to be looking for it. that's a, a skill set in and it, of itself. It, it very much so is a skill set. It's not even just like, oh, I'm going to need this. It's like, no, there's so many different types of archives, so many different types of footage you can be getting and looking for. There's, there's footage I didn't even get, or photos I didn't even get that I found later or found that archivist found later that I was like, ooh, mm. <laughs> if I knew then what I do now, the film probably would have been better, you mm. know, being able to use that footage. So uh, that was probably like, the biggest thing I learned. So, Yeah, what was that, you know, working with the archives, um, finding that footage, had some of that footage never been, you know, shared before? A lot of the footage hadn't been used in anything before, you know. For the Defenders, we were able to use a lot of the archives from the WLBT archives. Okay. So it's, um, WLBT is like the oldest television station in Jackson. And so they donated all their old newsreel to the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. And so they're, you know, from 1950s on up till you know, the 80s and 90s. And so there's a huge amount. So anything that's you know, that big that's happened in Mississippi, they kind of have it on film down there. Yeah. So that's an awesome resource. And then also I will say this, the, probably the best part about being from Mississippi is that they'll give you access to the archives. And if you're a Mississippi filmmaker, they, you know they'll give you good deals on being able to utilize that footage. Uh, because if you're not a state filmmaker, they're going to charge you at the wazoo to use that footage. Hmm. But if you're a Mississippi filmmaker, they give you a good deal on it. And um, because it's like, you know, they want you to use the, the, the archives as they're supposed to be used. And so that was always great, being able to use that footage. Um, also, the, the tough part about the archives, too, is that if you're telling black stories, sometimes I found this to be true in my other documentary. A lot of stuff don't make it in the archives, right? Uh. A lot of black families keep stuff. Okay. So, you know, there's, it, and, you know, the Library of Congress has a lot of things, and you realize that they did a, the federal government did a great job at sending different people to like to collect stuff to collect stuff, and so I found a lot of footage that way or photos that way. Huh. But you didn't, that first person stuff you find in museums, you got to go for depending on, depending on the story and how close it is to the cuff, especially with something like Mountain Bayou. 
like you got to go to people's houses. People's grandmamas and great grandmamas got that stuff in their homes. And so, well, this seems like a good place to segue into your documentary about Mount Bayou, mm -hmm. um, which is called Promised Land, a story about Mount Bayou. Um, first, for people who might not be familiar with Mount Bayou and what an incredible history it has as in the Delta, um, why don't you talk a little bit about Mount Bayou, just, you know, in yeah. general? So Mount Bayou is arguably, that's why I had to learn that to stay, I had to say arguably, because it used to be the oldest black town in the country. It's arguably the oldest black town in the country. There's some disputes on when other towns started, but they all kind of started around the same time. Uh, right after slavery, I think 1869-ish. Mm -hmm. But it was founded by a guy named Isaiah T. Montgomery, who was uh, somewhat of a, you know, he was, a, he was a, a, a big figure, but somewhat of a controversial figure back then. But he did build a, he was an ex-slave who founded Mount Bayou um, in uh, the late 1800s. And it's, like I said, it's arguably the oldest black town in the country, and it's still in existence today. Mm -hmm. uh, and and this uh, it's a history that the people from Mount Bayou are very proud of. It has it plays a, a significant historical role in the state's history. Um, when um, Emmett Till was murdered, uh, his mom was uh, living was staying in Mount Bayou mm. during the trial. Uh, Mount Bayou is notorious for being uh, a black haven, you know, a safety place with blacks in the whole state. Like you, you, you know, there was no. Uh, oppression there in Mount Bayou. It was an all-black town. It was run by black people. And for the most part, like, white people did not disturb it, didn't burn it down, didn't come through and snatch black people out of there. Like, it was a safe place for black people to be. And at one point, it was a very uh, uh, very rich place to be. It had a lot of uh, resources. Uh, cotton. It had a bunch of cotton gins back in the time where those things were very valuable. It had a lot of millionaires uh, that lived there. Uh, and it was a very, um, very well-to-do place as well. So that was a really point of pride for a lot of Mississippians in the Delta. And if you know anybody from the Delta, you missed Mount Bayou, they, they all talk about it in a, a great way. It was recognized also by a United States president um, as being called the jewel of the Delta. So hmm. that was a pretty big deal, too. So how did you, were you approached about creating a documentary about the history so, of So, yeah, so there was a... Uh, was a partnership between the Mississippi Heritage Trust and um, the National Park Service. And there was a grant that they put out there about making a film about Mount Bayou. And we won an opportunity to be able to kind of tell that story. Um, but it was uh, the Mississippi Heritage Trust's goal is like to to um, to preserve um, historical places in the state. Mm -hmm. And Mount Bayou has a bunch of different buildings in their banks and things like that that, that the Heritage Trust is working on restoring. And so the film uh, obviously highlights the history of the whole town, uh, its impact on Mississippi, and um, we, we were able to get that grant to be able to tell that story. They had a, they gave us a couple of facts to be able to hit on in terms of like different pinch point moments in history. But other than that, they were kind of like give you yeah, it was free creative reign to be able to make this film. Oh, that's great! So it's kind of cool to be able to kind of work it out and do it that way. Well, and I've I've heard you talk before about the importance of black artists telling black stories. Um, and, you know, you're mentioning having to maybe speak to private residents in Mount Bayou about, you know, their family artifacts, their family history. And it, you know, requires a lot of like interpersonal interactions with people um, just to be able to create a film and put it together. Can you talk some more about what what you mean when you say the importance of black artists or black people telling black stories? Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're kind of diving in 
deep into like these stories that involve uh, like black people or a specific type of people, there's a certain sensitivity you got to be you know armed with to be able to kind of pull it off correctly. Mm-hmm. And it's just easier if you tell these black stories, and if you're a black person from the you know or generally from the area then you're already predispositioned, yeah, you're pre-armed to be able to kind of come in and kind of know, like, how to talk to people, how to make them feel comfortable, and, and how to help them see why this is important. Mm-hmm. And and it also helps you empathize with why they w- wouldn't want to talk to you because you you get it as a black person, right? You know, it was, um, it's, there's all types of ways. Like, in order for you to be successful, you got to be able to identify I actually found this out really, you know, we do a lot of advertising work and we did a lot of advertising work around uh, Mm COVID-19. And we actually had to work on a campaign where we had to target African-Americans to try to get them to take the the shot, the COVID-19 vaccine. And so they contracted us, a black company, to be able to talk to those folks. And that was so important because we created this campaign called the I Got It campaign. And we basically created talking points that we knew, like, how to talk to people, black people, about getting vaccinated because we were black and we understood, like, I know why they're nervous about getting vaccinated mm-hmm. as a black person. So I also knew how to approach them. Like, yeah. hey, I know you're nervous about this, but let me tell you why it's important, you know. And so, you know, we actually, you know— um, got to see some really good turnaround here in the state. The state went from the, you know, the worst, uh, you know, worst minorities, uh, worst group of minorities being, you know, vaccinated to one of the highest in the country. And so that's one of the things that the Mississippi um, Health Department touts and one of our um, yeah. one of our leaders got to go to the White House and talk to a summit, talk on a summit about how, you know, they turned it around in Mississippi. And the advertising was a big part of that. And hmm. so... You know, to be able to reach those people, that's just a small example of, like, how can you reach black people? You get black people to talk to them, you right. know. How you want to reach, you know, Chinese people or women or whoever, Hispanics. Like, you would, you get those folks to talk to them because they know how to do it. And so the same with Mount Bayou. I'm, you know, I'm from Jackson, but my mom's from Greenwood, my dad's from Port Gibson. And so I was able to talk to so many different people, groups of people who wouldn't even want to be interviewed, who sat down with us, who gave us their whole life story and talked to us about Mount Bayou. Because, you know, I reminded them of their grandson hmm. or their nephew, right? And I talked to them like I was a grandson and nephew. And I was telling them, to be honest with them, like, hey, this story is important because, you know, people need to know around the country, you know, what Mount Bayou existed and why it existed and how it existed. And when we show this in other places, they need to see the real stories behind it. Right. And so they knew, like, okay, this guy, he, you know, he, he also, they also want to be shown respectfully. And so we've got a track record from doing, doing good work and not doing a lot of, you know, poverty porn and mm-hmm. showing all the porn. Like, we, we do really good work. So they like, oh, I trust this guy because he's done it before. And, you know, he's from here. Right. I, 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 don't, I don't benefit from showing Mississippi in a certain light. I live here, too. I don't want people to think a certain thing about You're Mississippi. You're not parachuting in and then leaving. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and but I'm also going to be real with you, too, and show and speak to the, the inequities here as well and show you, like, if people ask why is it like that, and I'm gonna go because of this. You mm-hmm. know? So, yeah, it's a great experience to be able to do that, and it just I'm, I I take that responsibility of being able to talk to folks like very seriously, and so it's not just me trying to put on a dog and pony show and like talk to people and like I bet I get her to say something. Let me talk to her. You like, know, no, it's like no, I'm very serious about what I do, and like I really want to help my people, and mm-hmm. I, and that, that comes across when I talk to them. So, you know, 
yeah. And were any Mount Bayou residents that were in the film, were they able to see it? When oh, it was yeah. Then? We debuted the film in Mount Bayou. Oh, cool. So we did We did two screenings in Mount Bayou for the first time we showed the film. Uh, and it was at the uh, local high school. Students got to see it first, and then the community got to see it second. And we actually went on like a six-city state tour, um, pre-screen tour. Before we totally finished it, we were taking it around the state. So Mount Bayou was first. We went to the coast. We showed it twice in Jackson, um, and we showed it up in uh, the Delta again at the B.B. King Museum. So we were over and over again showing the film to folks, making sure they knew they saw it. They had to get feedback to it. We worked closely with the local residents of Mount Bayou, the Mount Bayou Museum and the Mount Bayou Civic Club and all these different organizations. And not a lot of them. You know, it's a very, very small town now. Mm-hmm. Work with the mayor. Um, and so everybody kind of got the input into it, and and they were very happy with what they got. And so as long as as long as the folks at Mount Bayou were happy, that's all I was there worried about. Yeah. Well, um, it's so cool to hear about that experience, Roderick. And I, I just really appreciate you talking to me today. Just before we wrap up, um, where can folks find out more about you and Red Squared? Oh, you feel free to uh, to check us out online. We have a brand new website up now. It's called www.redsquared. Dot co, dot co, or you can go visit uh, redsquareproductions.com. It'll take you straight there to redsquared.co. Uh, or you can follow us on social media, uh, Red Squared Co, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, and you know, those are the great places to find out what's coming up next. But um, yeah, website and not social media. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org.